You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. I want to make sure I have some warm tea in case I need it. I want to start off this morning, though, by saying um, something about what's happening in our nation. Many of you know, have seen, whoops, something went wrong, um, and uh, of the Asbury revival, the awakening um, in Kentucky, Wilmore, Kentucky. If you haven't, if you don't know anything about that, just Google it. And uh, you'll find out all that you want to know. But let me tell you some of the things that are happening there. There's a remarkable presence of God that's happening in Asbury. It is uh, the converted and the unconverted. I might go ahead and do a hand. Um, I like, a, I like a handheld one better anyway. <laughs> There's a supernaturally hunger for God that's happening there. And this started with students, the next-gen generation, young adults wanting more. We're so excited about that. And it, you know, it's just, it goes right into what Sabrina was saying, saying yes, saying yes to the next generation. There's, they've been saying, we just want to be there. We want to be where this is happening, where the presence of God is. And what I've been, I've read, now, obviously, I haven't been there. I've read lots of uh, posts about it, blogs about it, people who have been there. Can I recommend one of the best ones, if you want to know what's happening in Asbury and what God is doing in this next generation, I would um, go to the blog by the president of Asbury University, Timothy Tennant, T-E-N-N-E-N-T. He writes such a great um, explanation. I don't even know if that's the right word, but what's happening there. Um, but they just want to be there. If normal circumstances, activities can be put on hold in order to be there to worship, they, they're there because something special is happening. There's such great leadership over it. They're really, it's really student-led. So, you know, this next gen is leading it, but there's good um, leadership in that. They have not canceled any classes. I thought that was really interesting. They haven't canceled any classes. It's, this is the 12th day, and it started with 20 students, and now thousands are coming from around the nation, even from around the world. And, um, and, the, and the president said this. He said, although classes have not been canceled, it's because we want, the desire is for it to go into the mainstream. Renewal into the very fiber and fabric of our lives to be transformed where we live, where we work, and where we study. So it's not like this is a mountaintop experience. They're saying we want it to go way, way deeper and further than that. It has to be in the mainstream. And so there's this evidence of this urgency of getting right with God. And um, like I said, it was just a few students who stayed after chapel who said, I want more. 
I just want more. And then they began confessing sin. And then more and more people were coming. It, the other thing I read about it is that if you go in, it's not this hoop and holler and, you know, people are, you know, dancing and laying in the aisles and things like that. It's there's this really quiet reverence about this presence of God just pouring out this anointing that's happening. The meetings are just, like I said, average people, lay people. There's no celebrities, um, Christian celebrities that are being highlighted, no great big Christian um, worship groups that are being recognized and highlighted. It's just worship, lead, people worshiping and leading in worship. And so I, I just wanted to give you kind of a little bit of what is happening and rejoice in that. If you dig into the different things and read different things, you're going to hear a lot of different perspectives. I love what I um, Zechariah 4.10 says, do not despise these small beginnings. Now, now it's larger, but still in the realm of the world, do not despise these small beginnings. The Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Amen? So what we can do is pray. Keep praying. Pray, pray for that, just to, this renewal to keep happening. And um, who would deny that we need an awakening in our nation? And this is exciting. It's something we celebrate and we give God's glory, God glory for this. The excitement that we see, though, and that we want does not happen by just someone saying, let's make it happen here. It doesn't happen that way. This is a sovereign move of God. What should you do personally in response to God's extraordinary movement to Asbury? I want to share with you what A.W. Um, a. Tozer said, a great theologian. Um, he says this, What God in his sovereignty may yet do on the world scale, I do not claim to know. But what he will do for the plain man or woman who seeks his face, I believe I do know and can tell others. Let any man turn to God in earnest. Let him begin to exercise himself unto godliness. Let him seek to develop his powers of spiritual receptivity by trust and obedience and humility. And the results will exceed anything he may have hoped in his leaner, weaker days. Amen? It's exciting. So keep praying and read about it. Get excited about this. It's really, it's amazing. And I'm, and I'm so thankful for what God is doing here as well. Um, because he is. He's, he's good. He doesn't, he's not confined to Kentucky, believe me. And I know you know that. So um, we're going to begin in, we're going to continue in John, in John chapter 17. There are many amazing prayers in the Bible, and I wanted to share just a couple of them that came to my mind. One was the prayer of Solomon when he dedicated the temple in 1 King 8. He prayed, O oh God, oh Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven above or on the earth below. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in a wholehearted devotion. I love that prayer. I mean, talk about that reverence, acknowledging who God is. Um, you, in all of heaven or above, on the earth below, you are God. Then there's also this prayer, and I'm only going to mention a couple because we're actually going to get into a very special prayer this morning. The prayer of petition from Abraham 
for the people of Sodom. It's really interesting because actually it was more of a dialogue. And I guess that's what prayer is, isn't it? It's dialoguing with the Father. It's talking to him. It's a conversation. It's pouring out our heart. And Abraham is in this dialogue with God. And actually, God started the dialogue with him. And he said, uh, God was stating that the people are evil and everything they do is wicked. And, and they're going to be judged. And so Abraham says to God, will you destroy? destroy both innocent and guilty this is effective intercession drawing near to God so we can pray with his heart and Abraham was getting it here Abraham continued with his intercession because first it was like if there's just 50 would you save would you save that city for 50 would you save it for 45 and God keeps answering they have this dialogue they're going back and forth they can, and Abraham continues with this intercession with bold humility and without pride. And not with an arrogance before the Lord. Yet he was still continuing to ask. He was interceding. And, and it finally gets down to where he says, suppose there's just 10 found there. Abraham was a very skilled, empathetic negotiator. <laughs> As we can be skilled, empathetic negotiators with God too. Abraham shows us that there are times when an intercessor will feel this urgency to pray and it really depends on people's destiny. That's what intercession is. And this kind of heart God wanted to draw out of Abraham. So when we pray, God is doing so much more in our life, in our personal life. A heart, Abraham's heart was to care so much for people made in the image of God. And Abraham worked hard to intercede on, the, on behalf of the city, even though they deserved judgment. So this was the heart of a great leader of a large and mighty nation that God was preparing Abraham for. So those are two just completely different prayers, right? I mean, here is um, Solomon just acknowledging God as, you know, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And then we have Abraham who's like, come on, God, <laughs> I, I'm with you here. Let's, let's figure this out. And um, just interceding for these people and really in, in, in himself building this character of a leader of a nation. But what would your prayer be if you knew you just had hours to, before you died? Because this is the prayer that we're going to be reading today. It's the prayer of Jesus to the Father. It's the greatest recorded prayer in the Bible. This is Jesus' own prayer. It's not Jesus teaching us to pray. It's his prayer to the Father. It's the longest prayer. It has 632 words. Jesus' prayer gives us a distinctive opportunity to see the nature and the heart of himself. We get to see this something in Jesus that we really haven't been able to witness before until John records this in the gospel of, um, in chapter 17. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it shows our nature just as when we have our deepest prayers, when we're pouring out our heart to God, it reveals our nature, our heart, our, you know, our passionate and earnest desires for God to, to meet us there. But the interesting thing, you know, when you're reading this you're, and Jesus is praying to, 
the father, you might be thinking, why does Jesus need to pray? I mean, Jesus is God. <laughs> He's part of the Godhead, and he is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So why, I think that's a logical question, why does Jesus need to pray? Jesus has this, this unique nature. He was fully God, and he was fully human, and he was fully submitted to the Father. Wow. In, in Philippians 2, Paul writes, though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. I, that's just, I'm, I don't know about you, but that's just hard for me to even wrap my head around. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus lived in voluntary submission to God. And here is an obvious application for us. I always look for these obvious applications because we're not just hearers of the word, we're doers of the word. If Jesus felt the need to connect with the Father, we have a need to connect with the Father in prayer. So let's read Jesus' prayer. We're going to just read portions. I'm going I'm to talk about that, and we'll, but we'll read the entire prayer this morning, the prayer of Jesus. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. So I want to just kind of break this down a little bit. One is he lifted up his eyes. Now, again, they're still in the upper room. This is part of the upper room discourse. And so, but he is praying. He's not talking to the disciples, and the disciples aren't praying with him. He is praying to the Father. He's lifting up his eyes in reverence and respect. Isn't it interesting? We always, you know, we always bow our head, and, you know, we've been taught as children to fold our hands, probably just to keep our hands from getting into and being busy doing other things. But um, the prayer of Jesus is that he's looking up. He's looking up in reverence and respect. This is a posture and a recognition of who is on the throne. Father, you are on the throne. He lifted up his voice, and, the, and obviously the disciples heard it, and John recorded this, prepare, this prayer. So he prayed verbally. He prayed out loud. He lifted up his voice. And I don't know, I think it's a great opportunity whenever we have that opportunity to pray out loud I don't think it's appropriate when we're standing in line in Costco or anything like that but if we're at home or we're on a walk um, we're in our car those are great times to lift our voice up to God I don't know about you but I easily get distracted when I'm praying silently all of a sudden I think of something I need to do and so when I'm praying verbally it keeps me focused and intentional on who I'm talking to. Jesus says this. He says in this first portion, the hour has come. 
The time has come. I finished the work. Bring me into your glory. I'm coming to you. There are many references in the word where he says, my hour has not come. Jesus was working on a divine schedule. He, had, he was managing a pace. He knew the right time and pace. And the people had to be confronted with the reality of who he was. So he knew the right time. He had the pace. And he says, now, now my hour has come. And what that means right now for Jesus, it meant that there would be no more teaching in the synagogue. There would be no more sermons on the mount. There would be no healing of the blind, the deaf, and the lame. His public ministry is done. His hour had come. Jesus' next assignment was to die. So he gave himself wholly to this prayer to the Father. The hour has come. Glorify your son. In order to be glorified, it is the cross that will glorify the son. The cross was utter humiliation to the world, but it was an instrument of glorification in God's eyes. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. So Jesus' prayer also has this anchor in it, an anchor that we have to have with us at all times when we're sharing with other people, living our lives. The anchor is we always hold on. This is the anchor we always hold on to and we always count on. It's when Jesus says, and this is the way to eternal life. That's the anchor, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. That is an anchor we can count on. This is the ultimate powerful prayer. He is thinking about me. He's thinking about you when he's talking about this is how you have eternal life. Jesus left the glorious splendor of heaven to be born in a feeding trough, a barn, a cave, with other animals in Bethlehem. This was a cross-cultural experience we can never relate to, regardless of the adventures we've had in life. I think of one, one adventure that we had. We were in Nigeria, and we went into the, what would be considered, I guess, the bush, and we were visiting people who were worshiping the Lord in a four-square gospel church way out in nowhere. And in, in, on their church, they had this little, very rough little sign that was done in paint with the four-square colors that said four-square gospel church. And I thought, wow, what a cross-cultural experience to see them worshiping here, proud of who they are as a body and worshiping Jesus. But it was nothing. That is nothing like Jesus was experiencing. I mean, he was in heaven. The splendor, the perfection, the beauty of heaven to come to earth. Leaving the splendor of heaven and leaving the Father. To come to earth, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be abandoned, to suffer, to 
ultimately die for us. And now he's saying, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. So this prayer has three parts. First part is that he's praying for himself. I'm praying for myself. I want my hours come. I want, I'm going to come to you, Father. He prays for his disciples, and then he prays for us. So in this prayer of Jesus, um, was his prayer answered? It says in Philippians 29, or 2, 9 through 11, his prayer was answered. We read, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His prayer was answered. Bring me back to you, Father. And he did. And then Stephen, the martyr in, that we read about in Acts chapter 7, it says that when he was dying by um, being stoned to death, he was full of the Holy Spirit, but he, and he gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw stand, Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. He said, oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side. Yes, God answered Jesus' prayer. So let's keep reading. In, in verse 6, it says, I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. When he says, they were always yours, you gave them to me. I want you to hear this. I think it's, it's something we need to really hold on to. We are God's gift to Jesus as a love gift. He didn't, we didn't choose him. He chose us. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. We are God's gift to Jesus. He loves you. He chose you. He chose me before the world was even created. Verse 9, my prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you. And you have given them to me, so they, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world. But I am coming to you, Holy Father. You have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name, so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction as the scriptures foretold, he's speaking of Judas. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in the world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. So, <laughs> 
world is spoken a lot in this passage of scripture. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world. So the world, and he's, and he's praying now for the disciples. He's praying for us. And, um, but that's an occupational hazard of following Jesus. The world system, the world ideology will hate us, will hate you. They'll disagree with you. They'll think you're crazy. The values of the world will disagree and mock you. So what do we do? We equip ourselves with the word of God and we clothe ourselves in grace because we are imparters of grace. And I want you to just hear this. When the world will hate you, you're in great company. We're in great company. I'm in great company when, I, when the world hates my values in Christ because Jesus, they hated Jesus. We're in good company when, when he says the world will hate you. In the New Testament, um, world is used 209 times. And in this passage, it's used, depending on your translation, 14 to 17 times. So what does it mean when Jesus says, my prayer is not for the world? Because I'm going to tell you, that, that phrase, if you just, you know, heard that, and you just take it for face value, you think, wow, that's really harsh. You know, I can't believe Jesus said that. Um, <laughs> the word world is used throughout the Bible. In Genesis, the world is often referred to as the earth. Creationism. So in this prayer of Jesus, when he talks about the world, he's not referring to his creation. I think we all know that. He's not saying, hate the world, hate the environment, hate the trees, hate the flowers. He's not, he's not saying that. He's also not saying, he, it's also the, the word the world in this um, context, he's not talking about the world of humanity. He's not talking about the people in the world. He's not saying, I hate the people in this world. He's not saying that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loves the people of the world. So in this prayer, Jesus is not saying, don't love people, hate the people in the world. He is not saying that. That would be contrary to the gospel. He is not saying this. The reference in Jesus' prayer is he is saying the worldly system and the values of this world. Worldly thinking and arranged or order where Satan is called the God of the world. He's not praying for that. And neither should we, right? I mean, I, I don't think any of us are. But that's what Jesus is referring to in this prayer. I'm not praying for the values and the system and the way the world, this worldly thinking that is orchestrated by Satan. I'm not praying that way. We are living in a physical world, surrounded by, human, by a human world, and, and it does have worldly systems of worldly thinking. We all know that. We all see that. We've all experienced that. So that's what Jesus is saying. In 15, verse 15, he's saying, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one, which explains that. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. 
Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. So we are set apart by God's truth. His word is truth. In John 15, it talks about how he's sending the comforter, the Holy Spirit, so he's going away to be with his father. He's dying on the cross. He's being glorified there. He's doing that as a work of redemption in our life. Thank you, Jesus. And yet he's not leaving us alone. He's sending the Holy Spirit as comforter, the source of all truth. He does not pray a prayer of escapism. I'm sending you into the world. He's not, you know, we're not saying, Father, we know this world is bad um, and we need to find a place to go hide out and, and stockpile a bunch of survival gear. He's not saying that. He does not pray a prayer of isolation. There is a place in northern Greece that is just fascinating for one thing, but these monks in the ninth century moved up to these ancient pinnacles and they pretty much were escaping um, the world. <laughs> and they lived in hollows and, and rock towers as high as 1,800 feet above the plain. You know, we've heard, I've heard people say, wouldn't it be great to live in a place where everybody, every neighbor loves Jesus? And maybe we're even thinking, wouldn't it be great to go to Asbury and just sit and just live there? I think we're describing heaven. <laughs> He's not asking us to escape. He's not asking us to um, isolate. He's not, and it's not a prayer to insulate. This was the Pharisees' approach to insulate. They would hold their robes as they walked through the streets in order to keep from touching anyone that they thought was unholy or unworthy, or unclean, or we don't want to fraternize with them. Um, we may not be so obvious, but we might have an, an inkling to stay insulated sometimes, to sequester ourselves. The Pharisees even mocked those who showed the love, the care, and the compassion to Jesus of the Jesus to the world. And they mocked Jesus too. They're the ones who said, look, your teacher is eating with tax collectors. And he's sitting with sinners. They insulated. He actually sends us into the world. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. How else will others know? We are light bearers. And honestly, we need the world. There's a story, um, a true story. In the northern United States, um, codfish are big commercial. It's a big commercial business. And so um, there was a big demand for codfish. And so there, it posed a problem to get the cod all the way across the United States into other places. And so at first they froze the cod and shipped them everywhere that people wanted to have them, all the way from the east to the west. And and to the south and, and everything. But the freeze took away much of the flavor 
of the cod. So then they experimented. They thought, okay, so we don't want to, you know, kill it and freeze it and send it. Let's keep them alive. Let's put them in the tanks of salt water. And, um, but that proved, and then ship them in the salt water alive. But that even proved to be worse than just uh, freezing them. Not only was it more expensive, obviously the weight, the cod still lost its flavor. And in addition to losing its flavor, it would also became really soft and mushy. And so um, finally, some creative person solved the problem as uh, in an innovative way. Uh, the cod was placed in a tank of water along with their natural enemy, the, the catfish. From the time they, the cod left the East Coast until it arrived on the West Coast, they, the, the, card, uh, the catfish chased the cod all over the tank. They were busy all the way from one end to the other. They were trying to escape their natural enemy. And you guessed it, when the cod came to the market, they were as fresh as if they were first caught. There was no loss of flavor, nor was there a texture. The texture wasn't affected. It was better than ever before. So each one of us are in a tank of particular and unescapable circumstances. And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's actually what we need. There are, there are God-appointed catfish in your life. And um, it brings sig significant, sufficient tension that keeps us alive, alert, fresh, growing, praying, um, interceding. It's all part of God's project to shape our character. And we'll be more like him. So problems are not meant to destroy us. What happens is stronger faith is, um, and stronger confidence, and most importantly, stronger in terms of experience so that we can reach out to those who are going through really difficult things and situations that we've experienced too. So we are sent into the world, but we are equipped with God's truth, with God's Holy Spirit. Verse 20, I am praying not only for those disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. He's praying for us. He's praying for the world. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for me. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Therefore be he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is interceding for us. When you think you've been prayed for by somebody really great and holy and that you really respect, that's nothing compared to God praying for us. <laughs> he is praying for us, interceding for us. Jesus is praying a prayer of intercession and intervention. If you think sometimes those interventions that you have that, you know, you hit the wall, he's been praying for that. He is praying for us now. I am always on God's mind. Psalm 139 says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. 
Thank you, Jesus. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are. I am them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. In Galatians 3, it talks about how we're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There are no Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, male or female, for we all are one in Christ Jesus. He talks about unity and how the world will know about him through our unity. We are unified when we keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus Christ crucified and risen again for me, for you. And we stand unified on the blood of the cross and the power of his resurrection. There are things that we might not see eye to eye. Believe me, I know that. I've, I've heard a lot of those things. But we keep our eyes on Jesus. Not that we discard those. But we keep our eyes on Jesus and we have to be honest with our hearts. Honest with my heart. A noted op um, observation in the Asbury Revival renewal, renewal is, their motto is radical humility and ethnic unity. So we can note the differences, and, but we have to monitor our heart so as not to get it jaded, to become cold-hearted, but to really keep a tender heart. That's, it's not easy, but we have to monitor our heart because his prayer is that we would be unified so the world will see, see him through us. Thank you, Jesus, that you looked beyond my faults and saw my needs. Be an imparter of grace. So we keep the main thing, the main thing. We come to the end of this prayer. And would you stand with me? I want to finish by reading the last of this prayer. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. From Jesus' lips to our ears, amen. This morning, I want to invite you. We're going to have people up here for prayer. Come, have people pray for you. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.